Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have a very special event, actually, and very special guest. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Otto Rank and its legacy, and there's an upcoming uh, conference happening um, online on November 4th and 5th, uh, entitled Unleashing Otto Rank, the Creation of Modern Depth Therapy. And I have uh, two on November 4th and November 5th, and I have two of the speakers here. So welcome to Rash's World, uh, Robert Kramer, as well as Kirk Schneider. Um, how are you doing today? Good, good, fantastic. Great to have you here. So I'd like to, uh, Robert, if you can start us off here, please, with a brief description of yourself. What is it you do? How would you describe yourself? As well as um, what you're going to talk about in, in terms of uh, auto rank, what is going to be your focus at the uh, conference? Well, thank you for the invitation for your webinar. This is my first appearance on your webinar, and maybe only my second webinar in my life. I, I, I did one uh, on existential therapy about five, five six months ago. So I'm a, I'm a little uh, in, insecure, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you can hold my hand and, sure. and lead the way. And the word leader, leadership is uh, important for me because I use, apply, Otto Rank's ideas in my capacity as a leadership consultant or a, a leadership development consultant. In other words, I developed the leadership capacity of senior managers and executives in corporations, governments, and civil society around the world. I have a PhD in leadership from a business school. I am not trained as a therapist, but I found myself so attracted when I was doing my PhD studies, and even a little earlier, to Runk's uh, fantastic ideas on what he called the creative will. And there's nothing more important in leading a company, a government office, or a nonprofit than exercising your creative will to uh, help transform the community which you are trying to change, mm -hmm. plus the staff that you are trying to uh, have follow you. In fact, there's no definition I've ever found better of leadership than somebody who has followers. Well, that does not include the ethical aspects of leadership, but that's what leadership is. So uh, I've written, uh, I don't know, five books on Otto Rank, or four books or six books. <laughs> Sometimes I lose track because some of them are translated into different languages. And my future or next book will be highlighted at the first international Otto Rank conference to be held online on November 4th and 5th. Now, Kirk, who I'm going to invite to introduce you to that conference, uh, helped organize it with his Existential Humanistic Institute located in San Francisco. Unfortunately, Siebrecht, our 
our missing uh, speaker tonight. He got caught up in a some sort of a traffic situation in uh, Belgium. He lives in Leuven, Belgium, and is a professor there. It is it also sponsors this conference, but Kirk is the one who took the lead. So I'm going to invite him to introduce the conference and tell your audience what it's all about and, and the fun that they're going to have if they sign up. Thank you so much, uh, Robert, Robert Freeman. And your, your talk, just briefly, it's called the uh, Autorank and the Creation of Modern Psychotherapy. That's correct. That's, That's the name of my book. My next book, published by Oxford University Press next year, it tells the untold story that not Sigmund Freud, not Carl Jung, not Alfred Adler, but Otto Rank yeah. actually should be given the credit for creating the principles of modern psychotherapy, which are rooted in uh, ex uh, the experience of a deeply empathic relationship in the therapeutic situation, about which Kirk knows <laughs> a great deal. So let me invite him to continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Kirk, yeah, tell us yeah. about it. <laughs> well, Bob, I think you're being uh, ultra modest here in, in terms of who is the inspiration for this conference. Uh, it, it really was you, as far as I, I'm concerned. And it was our, our discussions, uh, our very long-term discussions over many years, but in particular, the last several years, where uh, you wrote a book called uh, The Birth of Relationship Therapy, a skinny little tome, which is one of the the best books, as far as I'm concerned, on Otto Rank's uh, theory and his uh, therapeutic ideas as well. And there it is. It's uh, Birth of Relationship Therapy, uh, Carl Rogers meets Otto Rank. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, basically, that book shows that Otto Rank was the founding spirit and voice uh, for existential humanistic therapy because not only as as i uh, very lightly chided robert not only did is it about carl rogers meets auto rank but it's very much about rollo may meets Rado, uh, auto rank so both of these great humanistic existential pioneers really have have their their main roots in Otto Rank's uh, theory of uh, psychology, a theory of psychotherapy. And uh, and that's what uh, Robert's uh, new book is also about, is tracing uh, the lineage uh, of those great pioneers of existential humanistic psychology to Otto Rank, as well as much of uh, modern depth psychotherapy uh, Otto Rank's ideas about uh, the, the 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 foundation for our anxieties, as well as our possibilities and our our capacity for wonder, uh, homing in on the birth experience. Are, are absolutely formative uh, to our existential humanistic perspective and 
in many ways uh, the contemporary psychoanalytic perspective where uh, that shift between relative non-being and unity with the mother and with the cosmos, really, we got to open it up because we're talking about a spiritual dimension, not just interpersonal. Uh, to sudden abrupt being and pandemonium uh, makes a lot of sense to many of us as, as the, the fount of uh, the template for virtually all future anxiety and trauma. Uh, uh, as well as uh, possibilities for creativity, for discovery, for, for uh, bridge-building dialogues among people of, of very different uh, backgrounds. Because it's really, as Ron puts it, about the psychology of difference, how we deal with difference at a very primal level. And so how that infant is met by the parents and the culture is all important. And... Uh, it, in our view, underlies uh, classical Freudian theory about uh, the foundation for neurosis and psychological health, and even uh, underlies uh, much of the contemporary psychoanalytic emphasis on the interpersonal um, underpinnings of psychological disturbance and health because we're talking about one's relationship to existence as well as to uh, obviously the critical parenting and uh, culture that one comes into. And whether they're met with understanding and support or met with uh, fear, mm -hmm. often transmitted fear over generations that, that uh, constricts the child's will, creative will as Bob was talking about and, and, and I want to jump into that at the discussion here because it's I I'm I'm a student of Otto Rank found him by accident and just like just reading from the get-go when he talks about birth and death being the driving forces of us of uh, us being afraid of death and a lot of like our behavior is explained by knowing that and I've, I've read only three of his books and I continue continue reading and learning, but I loved his, uh, the latest one I read is Beyond uh, Psychology, where he talks about living psychology. And one of the things is that when we look at psychology, it's not something that's in the lab, that's uh, something that uh, you can study in a textbook. It's alive, it's creative, it has that creative will. And I just like, I just love that because we have various psychologists who are like trying to have a theory, which is an absolute theory and apply it to everyone. And this is how it should be. And that's not how it works, especially the human mind. So looking at neurosis, um, I like what uh, Rank is saying about that. It just baffles me that uh, how he did not receive the attention he should have because of those brilliant ideas. This was written a hundred years ago and it applies to today's world in many ways this uh this let me let me, yeah. let me take that one up the For baton sure. here yeah. uh, in in a single sentence ronk said that neurosis is a failure in creativity yeah. i mean that, in one sentence he That's tells brilliant. you that his whole life mission was to promote the creative life force the primal life forces he called it in one of his books 
and he was influential, although very few people know about it. In psychotherapy, Carl Rogers and Ronald May, but in for many prominent figures in the arts and humanities, they absorbed him. I'm going to give you a list that uh, I compiled for my coming forthcoming book, mm-hmm. which uh, which uh, I hope people will wait to read instead of reading the book that uh, that Kirk so kindly uh, uh, flacked for me. Wait for the bigger book because it's going to it's going to be much more comprehensive. Here's the list, just a list of the names of people who were who were deeply influenced by reading Ronk. Not one of them ever met him. Here's the list that I compiled, and I have lots of information about each one of these people in my forthcoming book. Samuel Beckett, Nobel Laureate in Literature. Martha Graham, creator of modern dance. Nella Larson, Black author, famous novelist of the Harlem Renaissance. Anais Nin, Irish and novelist. Salvador Dali, the surrealist painter. Richard Neutra, a very well-known modernist architect in the 60s and 70s. Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique. Henry Miller, novelist. Uh, Poet Sylvia Plath, professor of leadership and co-founder of the field of organizational development, Edgar Schein. Theologian Matthew Fox, who is going to be one of our speakers. Uh, and here's a, something that uh, will surprise many people. The curators at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. organized a major exhibit in 2022 entitled The Double, Identity and Difference in art since 1900, and they based it on Ronk's book published in 1914 called The Double. The Double is a theme that comes up over and over and over again in literary criticism. Just two weeks ago, or was it a month ago? I can't remember now. Naomi Klein, who's a professor of climate justice, in Vancouver, published a book called Doppelganger. Doppelganger is is the German word for double. A trip into the mirror world, where she uses Ronk's theories to try to understand the strangeness of artificial intelligence, where avatars live. And we find it difficult to tell the difference between reality and uh, fantasy. And of course, the most important name on this list who really brought Ronk back to life in the mid-1970s was Ernest Becker, cultural anthropologist and a philosopher who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1973 for his book, The Denial of Death. Uh, This book uh, tributes to it have come from scores of prominent people. It was based on Ronk and uh, 
and uh, integrated with Kierkegaard. So people like Louise, Louise Gluck, the winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Literature. Woody Allen, the filmmaker, <laughs> included the denial of death in his Academy Award-winning film, Annie Hall. Don DeLillo, very well-known American novelist. And of all people, President Bill Clinton had a copy of Becker's book on his bedside on the night of his marriage to Hillary. So uh, just one quote from Becker's book called The Denial of Death. He says, there's no substitute for reading wrong. <laughs> he is a mine for years of insights and pondering. You cannot merely praise much of his work because in its stunning brilliance, it is often fantastic, gratuitous, superlative. The insights seem like a gift beyond what is necessary. That should whet the appetite of anybody watching this podcast to learn exactly why so many people found reading Otto Rank a transforming experience. He was from so many different disciplines, which is amazing. Yeah, uh, so everywhere. many different. It's not just yeah, yeah. It's not That's psychotherapy. The man exactly. is not a psychotherapist. He's a profound philosopher, social critic, and not only that, he wants he wanted social change, yeah. and he worked very hard with feminists at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Work to create a new curriculum for social workers mm -hmm. to uh, transform um, the way they treated their clients and to promote social justice and equality and uh, feminism. Mm -hmm. That's what his psychology of difference was all about. So this man cannot be categorized. Uh, he's not a psychoanalyst. He's not a mythologist, although he wrote a, one of the most famous books on myth called The Myth of the Birth of the Hero. He's not an anthropologist, although he wrote a classic book on the subject called Psychology and the Soul. He's not an art critic, although he wrote the best book on art uh, anybody has ever uh, written called Art and Artist, he's a, he, he doesn't fit into the ordinary categories that, that our university departments uh, like to uh, create, dividing knowledge into slices and then prohibiting faculty from crossing lines into the other department. In fact, if you try to be interdisciplinary in today's university, and I have much experience with this, I think Kirk does as well. If you try to be interdisciplinary, you will be disciplined by <laughs> the professors and the departments who will not appreciate your uh, entering into their uh, territory.
And uh, just the rock jump... could never get tenure in any university. Exactly. And, and just writing to... across all lines. Jump into that, and then I, I want to have uh, Kirk's thoughts as well. But he was disciplined himself by Freud and by all his followers. So in a way, he was canceled from the beginning because he he was he canceled. He was canceled because he opposed the authority there. And sadly, a lot of people followed suit and did cancel him. And I think that's why he was also did not receive the attention he should have received. And I want to give a quote, too, because I, I really like this quote of changing how therapy should be and that it's uh, the strengthening of the individual will. And it says equal right of every individual to become and to be himself, to yeah. accept his own difference and have it accepted by others. We don't want to be the same. We don't want to see everything in the same way. And neurosis as a sign of rebellion, as a resistance of the individual against the norms and so on. I just love that because it puts everything into perspective and shows us that we've probably been wrong for decades. If we had only listened to him earlier, we would have advanced much more as a society, as, as a world and so on. But I'm really glad that we're unleashing his power now with this uh, upcoming uh, conference uh, next month. So, Kirk, your thoughts on that? Uh, so many thoughts have been whizzing by. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you asked about our talks. So my, my talk is on Ronk recasting psychoanalysis in existential terms. I really think that if we would have stayed with Ronk, uh, we would have a, a psychoanalysis that's much more holistic, Yes. That's much more universalistic. That's not just about the biases. So much of the the typical founders uh, of Freud and, and Jung, for example. Although I do feel that they, they both opened up some very very uh, important territory in terms of uh, exploding the vanity of the the human being mm -hmm. and uh, exposing us to uh, subconscious influences. It's just that. The way they, the way they frame the subconscious uh, seems to have come from, uh, to a great extent, from their own personal, you know, experiences, biases, cultural backgrounds, etc. Um, but Rank, by focusing on this universal experience, we all have, we're all wounded uh, at birth. This is. Uh, the the ultra wound in a sense that we all share and it's cross-cultural it's cross-individual and and it opens up uh as bob was talking about before you were talking about Araj, uh so many creative possibilities it's it's uh the facing what i would call the facing of the groundlessness and helplessness of our existence. And ironically, paradoxically, that very groundlessness and helplessness, without the equipment to deal with it, is, is a horror, is a terror, right? It's overwhelming. And again, forms a template for future anxiety, trauma, etc. But if we can gain the equipment, the tools to work with it, something I call life-enhancing anxiety, uh, which is the capacity to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence. If we can acquire that from our parents, from our culture, uh, 
then we can open up to many creative possibilities for our lives, uh, not restricted by the, the parental or the cultural system per se, although certainly influenced by it, but a, a genuine, a genuinely supportive and understanding uh, context for the child allows for a great deal of inner freedom, uh, both for the individual and the collective, and also uh, a, a sensitivity to the, you know, to the, the natural limitations of, of living as well. And it brings an openness too of being open and again for everyone. Like that's the therapist, yeah. that's the, the the client, that's everyone in society. And openness to other ideas, the difference, to individuality of seeing things differently. And I find like a lot we're afraid of that because when we accept yeah. a different point of view, we feel attacked by it, and it means that our point of view might not be correct. Our opinion might be wrong. And I think that's right. the fear where we, we have the us versus them. And we see that division because of that, but not to see it as a threat, not to see it actually as a way of enhancing and improving our own views, our own existence, and so on. And I think that's important, but we're missing the point if we want to be right in our way of thinking without looking at the actual reality of things and without accepting, like you're saying, that we're vulnerable, that we are traumatized, all of us, through yeah. the experience of birth. And we always are traumatized because we are afraid of death. That's something that's that's yes. looming around. Whether we accept it or deny it or not, it's still there. And to come to grips with that. Yes, I don't think we realize how identified we are with sameness. Mm -hmm. with this need for sameness. And, and that is just... Uh, one of the scourges of, of individual, what we call psychopathology, mm -hmm. um, you know, going the, the same route, uh, the same routines, staying constricted within those routines, whatever they are, same ideologies, um, the, the, the same dogmas that we stick to i i think this is this is one of the major points that rock brings up that is so important both on an individual and collective level mm -hmm. we somehow learn how to step out of that box of sameness now it's understandable that we grasp at the sameness because again at a very primal level that's where we were that that's a place that was safe and familiar, right? In the mother's womb or in the cosmic womb that we emerge from. Yeah. Uh, that is so powerful. And then we're suddenly thrown, as Heidegger puts it, into this wild existence yeah. with no moorings, nothing to grasp onto, except the skills that we may be provided from our parents and the culture to navigate. Yeah. So uh, it's understandable that we grasp at, you know, leveling and sameness in our thinking, in our feelings, et cetera, our bodies. But uh, it is very destructive 
uh, it, for many, many people. And it's, it's right. like, yeah. I would like to ask you sure. a question, if I may. I'm very curious. You're so enthusiastic about Otto Rank. You quoted him from virtually from memory. How did you discover Otto Rank? What led you to to him, and and what made you uh, stick to him, and not just uh, see him as another interesting guy? But there's a lot of more interesting people for me to spend yeah, time. No. For, for me, that kind of analysis was, was fascinating. And I, I started, like, I've always found it interesting, but I, I actually took it for real. And I thought the unconscious is actually real. And it's like something <laughs> that will help me, not something I read about. And so once I started applying that, my life started to change. My views changed. My whole existence shifted in a, in a, in a positive direction. And then mm -hmm. by accident, I found, I, I loved Freud and loved his insights. But then when I read Otto Rank, it's like, this is more correct. This, he's he's got it. He he gets it, and uh, just his his way of seeing things as well. And I like how he also talks about the the other uh, thinkers as well and psychoanalysts. And he compares himself to Freud, who's more like trying to make it a science. He's more like biology, uh, uh, biologically oriented. Uh, Jung, who goes a bit too far in terms of mysticism. And I actually have a name uh, for each of the, the people that I came up with as a game. So uh, it's frivolous, but I think it's it's, it's useful. Otto Rank's uh, original name was Rosenfeld. So a field of roses. I think that's beautiful mm. way of describing mm. him. Freud brought joy, the will to pleasure. Freud in German. Uh, Jung uh, brought youth and his Jungfrauen. I found out that he did have uh, various mistresses and so on. So that's another aspect. Uh, Adler, the will to power, right? That's something talks like the other, the eagle. And uh, um, Frankel, the frank will to meaning. So being open and accepting meaning. I have Skinner in there as a serial killer. <laughs> Skinner. <laughs> And uh, myself, hopefully, because Farzane, I found out recent, very recently, means wisdom. So, <laughs> so, 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 th that's what I've played around with. But uh, in more honesty, I think Freud's uh, way of seeing things was limited. That it's 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 very negative. It's like aggression. It's like uh, the goodness is missing. The creativity is missing. And. To me, Rank is bringing in artistry, bringing in um, the creative will of, of being different and thinking outside of the box. Those are the ones who stand out. Those are the ones we remember, not the ones who are the same, who conform, but those who stand out and oppose the status quo become our leaders, even though we often, and then we talk about leadership, even though yeah. we oppose them often, but the followers are those, you're a good leader if the followers follow you willingly. They choose. And that's a very different thing than leaders we have today who are like forcing you or you don't realize that you're being forced and coerced, but it's not out of your own free will that you follow them. It's because of conformity, of pressure, of peer pressure and so on. And I think that's an issue that we really need to uh, delve into in, in today's world. Mm. That's right. So, Ronk, uh, there was no term leadership development in the mid-1920s, when Ronk started to teach as a professor mm -hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Work. The term didn't exist. Mm -hmm. In fact, well, there was a word leader, but, but development was not, was not part of that. And his idea 
was to transform uh, the social workers in his classes into people, and these were almost all women, by the way, who could lead others to lead themselves. And what he was trying to say there was that your clients, poor, disadvantaged, um, minority, mostly women, have uh, lost hope, have have um, uh, been tossed aside by the rest of society. And yet inside your clients, he said, something that was so radical that the Freudians were shocked. I, I mean that quite literally. They were very vehemently opposed to what, what I'm just going to tell you. Ronk saw inside his poor, disadvantaged, minority uh, clients, those with different sexual orientation, uh, the, the energy of life, the creative life force, the primal cosmic life force, he called it. He was always a cosmic thinker. And he taught his social work students first to discover their own creative will, which had uh, not been allowed to be expressed at that period in, uh, in culture. They were supposed to be passive and, uh, and just give instructions to, to their clients on how to fit into society. He said, first, discover your own creative energy, your own life force, and then go out into the field and using empathic relationships, listen deeply to what your clients are saying. Carl Rogers first learned about Otto Rank when a social worker on his staff, at that time, uh, Carl was the director of child guidance in Rochester, New York, a, a guidance clinic. And one of his social workers there, he had hired a number, had been trained by Ron. And, and, and she told him, you know, Otto Rock is not doing Freudian therapy. Rock was living in, at that time in 1936 when uh, Rogers discovered him, not by reading a book, but by listening to one woman on his staff who said, I had therapy with Otto Rock and he taught us how to listen deeply. <laughs> and Rogers was amazed because he had never heard that from the Freudians that he had trained with at Columbia University's Teachers College for his PhD in, uh, in counseling. And so that's where the idea of, of, of active listening or deep listening came from, through a social worker who had been a student of Ronk's. At that point, Rogers decided to invite Otto Ronk to the University of Rochester for a three-day weekend workshop where Ronk could explain what he was talking, what his the social worker had been telling him he was doing. And Ron came and he did demonstrations of what later, and actually at that time, he was already calling relationship therapy. In other words, how do you build a trusting, mutually respectful, mutually empathic relationship with clients? Both sides were active and engaged 
in the creation and recreation of each other. This was unheard of by the Freudians who kept their distance emotionally. At the uh, recommendation of Freud, who had said, treat your patients like a surgeon, yeah. <laughs> which means no feelings are allowed to be yeah. No yeah. feelings are allowed to be felt yeah. <laughs> by the therapist in the analysis. So it was a radical shift in Rogers. And Rogers took it and created, to his credit, client-centered therapy, which, uh, and then spent the rest of his life teaching uh, this model, which he later eventually called person-centered because he moved far out of the therapy realm and into uh, a social uh, uh, improvement and help. And Rogers, this, uh, uh, psychologists have published articles, is the second most highly cited psychologist over the course of the 20th, clinician, excuse me, over the course of the 20th century. Now, Ronk was forgotten by 1960, or actually even earlier, because he had suffered from the cancel culture that the yes. Freudians inflicted on him. Uh, and so Rogers is now seen in almost every textbook as the founder, creator of modern psychotherapy. He was, but he himself always credited that weekend, a single weekend, that's three days, Friday night lecture, and then Saturday demonstrations of uh, relationship therapy, and Sunday maybe some more lectures and more demonstrations and a wrap-up, just like how we do this. <laughs> if, they, if the APA had been giving credits, CEU credits, they would have given everybody 20 credits for that one, that weekend. And yeah, just to add to that, I, yeah. I think uh, Ronk was the original person-to-person -person therapist. <laughs> yes, he used really the term person-to-person -person in his books. Yes, I mean, bringing in... Uh, a sense of love and courage he in talked relationship about love versus fear. And will. He talked about love and will, which Rollo yeah. May picked up. Rollo May never met Rogers, unlike uh, Ronk, excuse me. Of course, he knew Rogers very, very well. In the 60s, they were, they were very close colleagues. But Rollo May uh, had to make a marriage decision in the mid-1930s, and he went to a therapist who had been trained by Ronk in Paris, a man named Dr. Harry Bone, who, who helped him read Ronk, because Ronk was very difficult to read. And Rollo is, is, was a brilliant thinker and an analyst, and he could take it on all, all by himself after Bone introduced Ronk's ideas to him. And he talked a lot about love and will. Uh, during his own analysis with Harry Bone. And that's where the seed of the famous book, published later by Rollo in 1969, called Love and Will, was planted in the discussions 35 years or 30 years earlier with his uh, analyst, Harry Bone, who had been trained as an analyst by Ronk in Paris. 
just yeah. the term unconditional positive regard. I think that's just magnificent. It's like we should always have that ourselves and not just like imposing things. And Kirk, I wanted to, to talk about that, about therapy too, because I'm wondering mm -hmm. like how many people were like auto rank and they got moved away uh, to put on the path again, although their way of seeing things was actually really fruitful and was actually more correct than the status quo, than the social norm. So that in a way, therapy needs, like you, you're recasting it, we need to look at it in a, in a different way. It's like, let's see, let's work with the individual patient and not have a theory imposed upon them, but deal with them. What is it they need? Because Rank talks about, like, it depends. You can define it's neurotic if you are suffering from it, you're pretending to be someone else, which most of us are, and we often try to do that. So it's a, a common thing, but it's not when you are in line and in tune with who you are, your own identity. So of knowing that difference, and it might look neurotic to others, but you say, like, no, that's just how I am. Like I perfectly agree with who I am. Yeah, creativity, exactly. So uh, how can we uh, shift that because I think there's been quite a bit of unintentional damage done through also therapy, where oh, yeah. we try to correct things that need, don't need to be corrected to begin with. Well, R.D. Lang had a kind of a, uh, maybe overly devaluing line about his fellow psychiatrists, but yeah. I think it has a ring of truth to it. Mm -hmm which was uh, many of his uh, colleagues were suffering from what he called psychophobia, oh. fear of the mind. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he illustrated that with uh, the vase face illusion in his, one of his books, where he says the psychiatrists are focusing on the faces, the Janus face, mm -hmm. two opposing faces. They're focusing on the vases, the vase part, the mechanical part, the bundles of chemical and physiological reactions coming together versus the faces of the Janus face, person to person. So uh, I think this, this point is very well taken in terms of our field as a whole. We have many ways of working with patients that are unfortunately distancing and mechanizing of the relationship and don't allow for the beautiful stuff that's that's underneath. And that, as you say, some neurotics are beginning to feel, but they just don't quite have the courage to uh, open up to it in, in a fuller, more creative way. And just to mention Woody Allen would not exist if he had been treated successfully, then we wouldn't have his beautiful work and it's his comedy, right? I think it's well, like sometimes point. it can be served to, to, to a good purpose. It's as long as you know he doesn't suffer too much himself from it, but I don't think he does, right? So, as an example. Yes. So how many people have been shortchanged or cheated mm -hmm. by therapists coming at them as a doctor with a white coat is going to give them the answer? Versus a therapist who, as Irv Yalom so eloquently puts it, is more like a fellow traveler at an inn, mm -hmm. another weary traveler, a human being who's going to preside by and be with, be present to. Presence is so key to this whole process. Present to the rebirth mm -hmm. of the client. Uh, the client now coming into a birth having conditions whereby the client feels safe enough to work more deeply 
with what really matters about their lives and be able to be reborn in a sense in a way that supports their uh, unique way of seeing the world, uh, their deeper connection with, uh, with themselves and with others. Uh, and also in a capacity, I think this is really important, a capacity to reoccupy the parts of themselves that have been blocked off. And that means that primal wound of groundlessness and helplessness yeah. to come into greater ground within the groundlessness. Yeah. And so, so I think that's the limit, sorry, much that's more the limit freedom. with so, Freud, because he's like, once it's like, okay, now you know the truth. Now you know what's causing it. Okay, go ahead. Good luck. And it's like, no, that's when we actually like, we need this for which way do I take now? The job is not done yet. That's like, that's an important tool. But what comes next? And I like, again, the existential focus of it. What am I going to do with this truth now that I have it about myself? What's the next step? And that's missing often in, in traditional Freudian psychoanalysis, in my view, is not the truth itself doesn't cure you. You just have to, what are you going to do with it next? That's important, I think. Yes, that's right. And, and that's that's the gentle challenge that Rank and other existential oriented therapists bring to the relationship mm -hmm. is throughout the relationship, there's a kind of a, uh, well, there's certainly a, 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 a kind of inherent press on the patient to not only look at what is really going on for themselves, but how are they going to respond to it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. responsibility ability to respond and, and the, uh, the strengthening of the of the will of that person of the individual the strengthening of it and it's like okay now that you got this you're going to be fine but we have to get that and uh, i i think like uh, not not everyone does that and again traditional psychoanalysis did not necessarily do that it was like just digging in and again looking into the past finding out okay this is it that's it right my my job is done move on right No, but it's like that kind of i'm gonna be fine for the rest of my life if i have that if i in tune with who i am and um, i think that will help us as a society as well instead of seeing the nations what the rank says is basically we want to be immortal and if we identify with the nation which is a more uh, collective thing then we can survive therefore the other nation is a threat to the survival of this nation and so we're, this is just the denial of death happening. And if, if we take that out of the equation, well, there is no nation and there is no other and there's no other nation. It's just like we're all in the same boat. Yes. We all live yes. on a pale blue dot, as Carl yeah. said. Yeah, exactly. Beautifully yeah. said. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible to believe the lies of political leaders about safety that militarism militarism and uh, fences and fortresses are supposed to provide the nation state once you see the three minute video which i'm going to show by the way during my talk cool. uh, at the first international autoround conference for those people who haven't seen it i've seen it a thousand times and each time i see it i get a chill down my spine, uh, Google, if you want to see it ahead of time, 
simply Google Carl Sagan pale blue dot on YouTube. Three minutes will change your life. You do not need interminable analysis, as <laughs> Professor Freud insisted. You will remember that you are a speck of dust on a infinitesimally small piece of rock that is circling around a slightly larger speck of dust which we call the sun. That is our existence in the cosmos. Yeah. I always like to say, you know, we live in outer space. <laughs> this is something that is just incredible, but yeah. impossible to avoid realizing once you see the pictures that are now coming out from NASA's uh, telescopes. There's one that just came out a month ago or so. I, I forgot the name of the telescope. Maybe one of you can recall it. I think uh, it's Extra Large Tele Telescope. It had like ELT or something like that. I'm not no, sure. There's yeah. a name for it. It's named yeah. after one of the first directors of NASA whose name right. just I forgot his name. Yeah. escapes me. But just click NASA's latest photos or Google NASA photos and you your mind will be blown. You do not need LSD, although <laughs> it will help. But, but I want to counter that too. If you look at individually, if you go deep inside each person, there is the universe within us as well. So I remember seeing a book when you go deep inside like the cells and you see basically the same image that you see out of space. So the inner and yeah. outer space are connected. So even though we're spec, but we're a wonderful spec. We're a, like a, a marvelous a part, spec that includes. We're a, part, we're a part of that groundlessness. We're part and of the whole. And the whole. The drop that contains the ocean at the same time, I think. Yeah. The whole infuses each of the parts. We are. Yeah. That's right. We are in the cosmos and the cosmos yeah. is in us. Yes, yes, yes. That's yes. It. And, it. and this is precisely why interpretations and attempts to explain away people's problems is not enough for many people to deeply heal. This is what yeah. Brock brought yeah. in also. Mm -hmm. Again, the person-to-person -person soup mm -hmm. of that relationship is so critical because it's allowing a person to experience their struggle, not just talk about it or report about it. Yes, and the Actually word experience, experience very important. Thereby because... occupy, reoccupy, literally and figuratively, parts of their embodiment of the struggle right. that have been cut off. That's right. So Ronk created experiential therapy, not only humanistic therapy, not only existential therapy, not only leadership development, not only he was actually the first psychoanalytic movie critic of all things in 1914, but he created experiential therapy. He said the the feeling that emerges between the I and the thou. He actually used the <laughs> Buber terms, I yes, and thou, yeah. which is quite something that Freud never did. Freud always advocated an I-it relationship mm -hmm. yeah. because the patient was an it and he was the doctor treating a patient. Rock actually introduced 
I-thou relationships into psychotherapy, which today is relatively well accepted and common. And even a few psychoanalysts are willing to do it, not many, they're still on the margins. And uh, he was so advanced, uh, in so many ways, he was a century ahead of his time. My new book will show that Otto Rank was talking and doing things today we are just discovering <laughs> exactly as if as if no one had ever thought about it before so it's a tragedy that the psychoanalyst canceled him that is an absolutely apt term in german the word is todgeschwiegen which means uh death but death. silence basically in other words they refused to read him they refused to quote him. And if anybody ever mentioned his name, they would have to attach the adjective psychotic or mentally ill to his name. Therefore, he was forbidden. And this really harmed the psychoanalytic cause. And today, sadly, it has fallen in reputation in universities. It is not even taught in uh, most universities, except perhaps as one module in a history of psychology course. They have lost their prestige. So many books have been written about uh, the, um, well, the bad behavior of many analysts, including Jung, uh, Ernest Jones, who wrote the three-volume biography of Freud, uh, had really bad behavior with his patients. I would just leave it to your imagination. Mm -hmm. Jacques Lacan, mm -hmm. leading psychoanalytic uh, figure today, was well known for abusing his female patients. And so it has a legacy that is dark, but still there's light in it because there are a few brave souls, some of whom Kirk is good friends with, uh, have seen that they took the wrong path. And now they are getting closer to the existential humanistic uh, psychology, although they are still on the margins. These folks are, are pushed out uh, by the mainstream. It's, it's tragic. Yeah. Freud today is read by literary critics or by um, students of marketing or oh. entertainment. He is not considered an influential figure anymore in psychotherapy. I think that's right. But in all fairness, psychology as a field has become more medicalized and mechanized also, which is opposing all forms of depth psychology uh, as it moves toward a, a neuroscientific behavioral sort of model. Uh, but that is, I do, like you say, Bob, I think that's shifting to some degree and there are some pioneers who are really beginning to see the value of uh, seeing more of the whole person rather than just parts of people or just the external. Uh, Robert Stoller might be one example in psychoanalysis. Yeah, he's, he's one. He's but he's, uh, 
there are very few. And honestly, I think I can count them on the fingers of my two hands, the number of people I know who are uh, uh, comfortable with even talking about a word like the will. That is not a word that is acceptable in the mainstream psychoanalytic uh, circles. It's 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 actually uh, laughed at and, and said that, uh, ridiculous doesn't exist. We don't uh, we don't have anything to do with something as mystical as the will. While Erwin Yalom and Rollo May, and Ron, of course, and William James all said that the will is a fundamental center of the human soul. It is the soul. In fact, it's simply another name for it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's wonderful to put Otto Rank back on the map. That where that's what exactly. you are doing, and I want to really thank you from the bottom of my heart. So I just want to make sure that I mention all of you. So Robert Kramer, uh, you you're one of the organizers. You're a professor of psychoanalysis and management and uh, leadership. And uh, Schneider, of course, psychology psychotherapist. And we also have Siebrich van Horen, who was uh, not able to come, uh, Siebrich van Horen. So he's a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist. But it was the the, the power of the uh, three musketeers, or three amigos, right, who are bringing uh, um, back into focus the amazing, uh, outstanding work of, of Otto Rank. And, uh, and again, thank you so much. I am very much myself looking forward to it uh, next month and uh, we'll, we'll gladly attend. And I think it's also fascinating that there's a, a moment that we can also discuss things. There's open discussion involved as well. So I'd like to point that out to, to anyone who's just yes. like afraid of just a lecture? No, it's interactive. No. It's what Otto Rank would have done in, in his own webinar if he had uh, organized it. So uh, that's wonderful. And Arash, if I could just mention quickly, it is sponsored mainly by our Existential Humanistic Institute, which can be accessed at ehinstitute.org. And you can find out more about the conference at that website. November 4th and November 5th. It's two That's days. Right. It's uh, completely online through Zoom. And thank you so much for being here on, on the Russia's World. Thank you for promoting you. it. I fully promote it wholeheartedly. I've, I've sent it to all my friends as well and uh, hope uh, uh, a lot of people will attend because it is important. It is something that really like personally resonates with me and I hope more people did. But again, thank you so much for, for, for doing this. Well, thank you, Arash. Auto Rank is tanned and rested and ready to go. And With coming back to life. So he was silenced to death, but now he's having a rebirth. Uh, hopefully. Yes. Yes. He is. We hope so. Yeah, we are bringing him back to life. Uh, That's it. That, That's Matthew it. Fox, one of our speakers, one of the great theologians of the 20th and 21st century, will be speaking on Rank, whom he considers to be uh, he calls him a saint. I think that may be a little bit of <laughs> That's a, about right. That's access, about right. But um, he is, uh, Matthew has uh, published 40 books and uh, is, uh, sold millions of copies and he's world renowned and he's going to be one of our speakers. And he wrote the forward to my new book. Yes, <laughs> he did. Thank you so much. Much appreciation for the opportunity here. Thank you. Thank you.